This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to welcome you here today. As you may recall, on this podcast, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the New Yorker archive. We read it, we discuss it, and then we ask them to read one of their own poems that's been published in the magazine, and we read that and we discuss it. And my guest this week is Tom Slay. Tom Slay, the recipient of so many honours, the Guggenheim, the American Academy in Berlin, and the Shelley Prize from the Poetry Society of America. Welcome, Tom Slay. Paul, it's good to be here. Now, the poem you have chosen is a poem by Seamus Heaney. Seamus Heaney, a man whom you knew quite well. Yeah, and one of the reasons why I've chosen the poem, uh, it's called In the Attic, was because I saw it uh, in an issue of The uh, New Yorker that you edited. And I, as soon as I saw the title of it, I remembered about well over 30 years ago, the very first time I visited Seamus in Dublin, uh, this was before he'd renovated the house, and during the renovation, he referred to the house as the bomb site, which I re- remember that quite well. But this was before all of that, and I spent the night up in the attic, and it was a wonderful place, um, overcrowded with books. Uh, it had a kind of friendly chaos about it, which I absolutely loved. But he probably knew you exactly in the time-honored way. He knew exactly where everything was. Exactly. And that was a thing that was amazing because when you went up there, you know how he was very um, particular uh, and had a kind of mind like a steel trap for all kinds of, you know, detritus, quotations. Um, I remember once... When I was there during that visit, this this is just exactly the kind of thing that I think you probably noticed in him frequently was he put on the stairs uh, various stuff that the kids, the kids back in those days were, of course, full grown now. He put things on the stairs. And I said, well, why are you doing that, Seamus? And he said, well, it's kind of an experiment to see if the children will pick them up and carry them up the stairs. And I said, how is the experiment going? And he just smiled at me and said, well, it's an ongoing experiment. Now, of course, the attic itself was the place where he conducted so many of his own experiments. This isn't the first poem in which he 
wrote about his workspace. There's an earlier poem. I remember quite vividly um, his description uh, of it as being uh, like a deep litter, being in deep litter. Yeah, the deep litter of the study. Uh, I remember that poem very well. He's talking about lighting uh, one cigarette off another. Uh, And it's just a wonderful image of him up there. He's talking about how it's all hutch and hatch uh, rather than what it later turned into, which these magnificent skylights looking out over the Irish Sea. The hutch and hatch, the hatch, of course, is a, a word that's connected intimately to the idea of deep litter. A deep litter, of course, is a, is a way of uh, raising hens. One raises them oh, I didn't in, know that. Well, one raises them in deep litter. I mean, when I was a kid, the farmers would say, I, I'm, I'm trying the deep litter. And what that meant was that they were, they were raising them on uh, peat. Huh. Yeah, the bales of peat or turf broken down and the hens were scrabbling around there and it was a representation of what you might think of as their natural habitat. So I wondered actually to what extent the term deep litter would even have resonated beyond the hen-keeping community. Uh, well, for me, it was more about um, kind of the um, deep litter of the mind. Well, of course. The idea that it's... Uh, is rooted in something as physical, as daily as that. Uh, that's very typical of Seamus. It is. Know? And as I say, it's where the hutch and the hatch come from, the hatch in particular, and the incubation, as it were, up there in the attic. Anything else we should know about this poem before you read it for us? Oh, well, there's just a couple of things. Um, the poem is, takes as a springboard um, both the book by Robert Louis Stevenson of uh, Treasure Island, um, and also uh, the movie. And I was curious. I, I hadn't seen the movie or read the book in many, many years. And so I reread them mm-hmm. just like the last few days. The book is absolutely marvelous. Well, you know, I have to say it may be. There are so many books one could choose from. I think it may be my fav- my own favorite book. You know, Paul, I think it's really up at the top for me to... And what makes it so brilliant? Well, for me, it's that kind of um, limpid, no-sweat English prose in which everything is registered uh, descriptively with perfect accuracy and in a syntax that you feel absolutely tracks the speaker's consciousness as they're perceiving things. The cast of characters. Oh, each one of these characters is so fully drawn. Absolutely. Um, Starting with, you know, the old sea captain. Yeah, right, uh, right, uh, Billy Bones. But those other characters, you know, every last one of them, including the mother, then Blind Pew, oh. then uh, Silver himself, of course, uh, then uh, the kind of Robinson Crusoe uh, lookalike. Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn. And then, uh, well, Israel Hands, who features in this poem. Yeah, he does feature in the poem. And one of the things about the poem that I love is the way in which the story, Treasure Island, picks a single moment out of uh, the book and, in fact, the movie, which is in a way climactic. There's a particular moment in the book uh, when everything's gone awry, of course, and The pirates and the uh, Jim and his friends are now both going after the treasure, but they're also at each other's uh, throats. And so Jim goes back to the boat, which the pirates have taken over, 
and he finds Israel Hands on the boat. And Israel Hands and Jim uh, end up in this strange kind of fight in which Jim begins to climb the rigging with Israel Hands after him. And Israel Hands has been wounded in the meantime from another fight. So he's coming up very slowly, and Jim climbs all the way up to the cross trees, which is the very top of the boat, in the crow's nest, and Israel Hands is climbing up the rigging, and he's got a knife, and Jim has two pistols, and the first time he shot the pistols, the powder's been fouled because they've fallen in water, so he has to reprime them as Israel's climbing, and it's very, very tense, very, mm-hmm. very exciting. And what happens is that uh, Israel Hands hurls the knife from about 15 feet. He pins Jim's shoulder yes. to the mast. and then Through his shirt. Exactly. And then Jim fires the pistols almost involuntarily and kills Hans. And Hans plunges all the way down into the sea because the ship has run aground and is canted at an angle. And Jim looks down, and because of the current, it looks as if Hans is still moving, still alive. And he refers, I think, uh, in, I mean, I read this book at least once a year. Oh and I think gosh. the phrase that he uses, he describes him lying there on the sand. He can see him right down on the bottom on the sand with the quick fishes staring over him. Exactly. And he's a genius, this guy. So Seamus Heaney, another genius, uh, takes up this image from um, Robert Louis Stevenson. Let's hear now In the Attic by Seamus Heaney. And uh, it's read here today by Tom Slay. Like Jim Hawkins, aloft in the cross trees of Hispaniola, nothing underneath him but still green water and clean bottom sand, the ship aground, the canted mast far out above a seafloor where striped fish pass in shoals. And when they've passed, the face of Israel hands that rose in the shrouds before Jim shot him dead appears to rise again. But he was dead enough, the story says, being both shot and drowned. A birch tree planted 20 years ago comes between the Irish Sea and me at the attic skylight, a man marooned in his own loft, a boy ship-shaped in the crow's nest of a life, airbrushed to and fro, wind-drunk, braced by all that's thrumming up from keel to masthead, rubbing his eyes to believe them, and this most buoyant, billowy, top-gallant birch. Ghost-footing what was then the terra firma of hallway linoleum, Grandfather now appears, his voice a waver like the draft-prone screen they'd set up in the club rooms earlier for the matinee I've just come back from. At Isaac Hands, he asks, was Isaac in it? His memory of the name a waver too, his mistake perpetual, once and for all, like the single splash 
when Israel's body fell. As I age and blank on names, as my uncertainty on stairs is more and more the lightheadedness of a cabin boy's first time on the rigging, as the memorable bottoms out into the irretrievable. It's not that I can't imagine still that slight, untoward rupture and world tilt as a wind freshened and the anchor weighed. Beautiful. I notice uh, you were reading there from that uh, version that was published in uh, the, the final volume itself. Yeah, 2010, yeah, Human uh, Chain. Human Chain. As it appeared in the magazine, in fact, it was ghost-footing what was then the terra firma of hallway linoleum. Grandfather now appears above me just back from the matinee. Oh, my goodness. And he changed that, of course, because it sounds as if grandfather is just back from the matinee rather than above me. Right, me, right. Me, just back from the matinee. Right. I know that Seamus Heaney, along with many poets, of course, like, you know, kept uh, revising right down to the end. Yeah, that, and that was something that I always loved about Seamus. Is, um, you know, over the years, I'm sure just as he did uh, with me, I'm sure he did it with you, he would send me drafts of poems. And the thing that was most remarkable is that sometimes... He encouraged me to uh, be frank, and mm-hmm. so I was. And his sort of command to me, both in person and on the page, was, now, Tom, hit it. Well, that's right. And frankly, unless a poet has that uh, capacity to be able to listen to what people uh, have to say to him or her and, and to actually maybe even act upon it, they're probably in deep trouble. I agree with you. Um, you know, the real danger with any poet, I think, is learning to do too well what you already know how to do. And I think for Seamus, um, do you remember, Paul, when he published Seeing Things? I was so astonished by those poems. Uh, it was like a, almost a completely different way to write. And it just reminded me that a lot of, you know, living a lot of, you know, life events go into um, making a style, and then unmaking a style is just as arduous. You know, it's not, mind you, that he's absolutely clear of some of his own... Oh, I don't want to yeah. say ticks, but when I see buoyant, billowy, top-gallant yeah. birch, there is a particular concatenation of three adjectives yep. which appears in several poems. Well, several... Many poems. <laughs> well, I think, and of course, what's fascinating about that to me is that I think it's a little bit of a tick, if we may use that term, sure. tick, a habit, T-I-C, yeah. that he derives actually from a certain Robert Lowell. I think that's uh, very accurate, actually, uh, because Lowell was a big fire source for him. He was. But right beside that uh, those uh, that uh, triplet, as it were, of adjectives, buoyant, billowy, top gallant, Birch. Now, one simply may not use the word birch in a poem without summoning another American poet. Yes, Robert Frost, a swinger of birches, yeah. And, of course, Frost was very big, big in, in, the, in his um, 
firmament also. Another, I mean, actually, I would say, I don't know what you would think of this, that all the toing and froing on the Isaac hands and the Israel hands ah. brings me to another of his uh, heroes or heroines, uh, Elizabeth Bishop, right. having to do with the corrective component that I think we've talked about many a time, actually, in the podcast. One of her trademarks, one of her ticks, actually, one might say. I don't necessarily use the word tick in any kind of pejor- oh, no, no, pejorative sense. So much, yeah. I'm just saying, I mean, these are the, it's through moments like this that we actually see the watermark in many poets. I mean, the great danger, of course, is that they start um, counterfeiting their own (laughs) currency, right? Right. And this, for me, this poem is absolutely, uh, you know, gold from beginning to end. And it's partly, you know, in that string of adjectives, if you didn't have a very specific word, buoyant and billowy, you can see how that could be automatic. But it's the third adjective, you know, the bit of nautical uh, um, lore from um, a sail, the top gallant sail, which is there's the source sail and then the the, uh, top sail and then the top gallant and then there's a royal sail and a sky sail and all the way up to a moon raker. I love that specificity. There is. And also each of those words is operating in at least a couple of directions, even top gallant. You know, Absolutely. Where we come from, I come very, from an area very close to Seamus Heaney, you know, we would talk about gallant, you gal- the gallant boys. We would use that term, huh. room, room, my gallant boys, and give us room to rhyme. And so top gallant is another, not only does it just, does it describe uh-huh. a particular, very specific form of sale, yeah. but it's having pl- a, some fun, I think, with the idea of the best of the best. Billowy, in the context of a sea-going narrative, of course, is yeah. is, 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 is good fun, buoyant, of course, too. In any case, Tom Slay, thank you so much for uh, introduce, reintroducing us or introducing us to In the Attic by Seamus Heaney, which was published in the February 9th, 2009 issue of the magazine. In the January 16, 2017 issue of The New Yorker, we were very happy to publish your poem, Tom Slay, your poem, The Fox, and you're going to read that for us now. Anything we need to know in advance? You know, we have the luxury as we're reading a poem on the page uh, or even on a tablet um, in this modern era, uh, I've been able to ca- literally one's eye to move around over it. With the ear in this particular format of the podcast, it's sometimes not a bad idea just to have the advantage, I think, in general, of uh, being alerted to perhaps a reference, an allusion, a term, a you know, piece of vocabulary that it might be uh, that we might not necessarily know immediately. Well, I will just say about the poem that, um, you know, I'm a surfer and I surfed uh, when I was a boy and uh, the poem is sort of, it's set in uh, San Diego um, and there was a particular beach I loved going to, it's Black's Beach um, because there was always a very good swell there. Now, one thing that, uh, if you don't mind my saying, distinguishes you from uh, the late Seamus Heaney is that he was not a surfer. <laughs> well, and the fact is that he was deadly feared of water. And in fact, he, he uh, in one of his poems, he refers to Robert Lowell ribbing him about his fear of water. Yeah, I remember that poem very well. But you were out there surfing. Yes, and I, I um, 
it's actually one of the great joys of my life uh, when I go back out there because my mother still lives out there. I go out there to visit her, and I get out in the water. Uh, I'm terrible now. I used to be pretty good. But um, now I'm the oldest guy in the waves, and uh, I look at the youngsters running right down my throat, and all I can do is desperately try to get out of the way and catch another wave. But the great highlights of a life, I think, if you're a surfer, is when you're in a wave that is large enough that as you go into uh, the barrel that it tubes you completely and you shoot out. Now, that doesn't happen very often. The waves have to be fairly big for that to happen, plus you have to be quite skillful. Right. So in the poem, I get to imagine myself doing that, whereas in real life, uh, I think I would have eaten my lunch, as we said, back in the day. The Fox. Marine helicopters on maneuver kept dipping towards swells at Black's Beach, my board's poise giving way to free fall of my wave tubing over me. Nubs of wax under my feet as I crouched under the lip, sped across the face and kicked out. All over southern Cal, a haze settled. As if light breathed that technicolor smog at sunset over San Diego Harbor, where battleships at anchor, just back from patrolling the South China Sea, were having rust scraped off and painted gray. This was my inheritance that lay stretched before me, which is when I felt the underbrush give way and the fox that thrives in my brain, not looking sly, but just at home in his pelt and subtle paws, broke from cover and ran across the yard into the future to sniff my gravestone, piss, and move on. And so I was reborn into my long nose and ears, my coats red, white, and brown, giving off my fox smell lying heavy on the winds and the years when I'd outsmart guns, poison, dogs, and wire, when the rooster and his hens clucked and ran, crazy with terror at how everything goes still in that way a fox adores, gliding through slow-motion drifts of feathers. The Fox, read there by Tom Slay, who also wrote... You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. Can you remember anything of the process of writing that poem? Well, I think uh, that I'd always wanted to write a poem about um, surfing, uh, 
Tom Gunn, who wasn't a surfer, has a very good poem about watching surfers. And then there was a poem by Phil Levine, which I'd always loved, and which uh, Phil turns himself into a fox um, in Central Park, as a matter of fact. And then, obviously, there's that great poem by Ted Hughes. You know, Ted, Ted Hughes's poem, The Thought Fox, does come to mind here, and, and one of the things that strikes me about your poem is how it acknowledges that. It has to. It has to acknowledge that in just the way um, Seamus Heaney's Birch somehow has to, you know, it, it, it has to be acknowledged by him. Um, and yet it moves on. It's not trammeled by that. It's not hampered by it. It's not dragged down by it. And it's partly, I think, uh, because of the beautifully uh, delicate way, actually delicate is a word that Hughes uses, but the delicate way that you bring the underbrush or actually the fox's brush, which the technical term for a fox <laughs> tail, right. of course, is in the underbrush, and it's almost as if it's hidden in there. Yeah, uh, and I was um, delighted, actually, when the fox appeared in the poem, uh, because one of the things I think about poems, and particularly when you have an animal surface in the poem, uh, anyway, at the moment when the fox, is the fox is kind of impatient with the speaker, and he just says, oh, tack with you. I'm going to take this poem over now, and it's all going to be a primal sensation, you know? Now, tell me this. for the re- There might be some readers, because, you know, the, as readers, we, we can be quite uh, persnickety. Some of us uh, might think, well, you know, I thought this poem was going to be about surfing and the beautiful description of the... <laughs> You know, there's been a kind of little bait and switch here. You know, I thought I was in this surfing poem and now I'm in this fox poem. You know, what's, right. what's going on? Well, I think for me that what's going on is that there are two things that are happening that kind of make an interesting hinge. And that is is that in the surfing poem, uh, obviously in the background of the poem is the Vietnam War. Yes. And there is actually the tunnel. I mean, in a way, the tube of the... The tube of the the wave is actually a kind of fox hole or tunnel. Is that correct? I would agree with that, and I think it's a um, sort of essential that the speaker is being tubed, um, and that there's a certain kind of danger there, but also a certain kind of elation. And at the end of the poem, clearly the fox is uh, he's in the hen house and he's killing. Right. The chickens, and there's a certain kind of great elation in that act of violence, too. There's an explosive aspect there. Now, but tell us more about the backdrop, if indeed um, that's the correct term. It's maybe more than a backdrop of the, the impedimenta of war. Well, I think that it's very difficult um, right now, unless you have a kind of firsthand experience... Um, so that the things that happen in war actually imprint on your nervous system. Uh, for you to escape the sort of what I think of as the kind of, you know, five o'clock news poem in which somebody is watching some catastrophe on a screen. And I often feel that those poems are kind of vitiated by the secondhandness of them in a way. Heaney has a beautiful phrase 
Just a beautiful phrase. And he calls it the primal reach into the physical. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one of the things that unless you find a way to get at some remove from the subject. Now, you have written a, a number of quote-unquote war poems. Yeah. Um, a lot of, most of it has come out of sort of first-person observation, or actually all of it has. And that's because you, you went out to some... Yeah, I've zones. been. Yes, I've been um, in Lebanon. I've been in Syria. I've been in uh, Mogadishu. I've been in um, uh, Libya. I've been in Iraq. Let me just ask you a very crude question. Sure. Please forgive me. It's part of my job, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> what brought you out there? The first time I just got invited by the Trans Arab Unity Foundation. It was a that's a very fancy name for two people who put together this little organization, and they wanted to bring a few American writers. Um, to uh, Lebanon uh, to meet and, uh, you know, visit uh, Palestinian refugee camps. And when I got there, I mean, I'd never done anything like this before. I mean, believe me, I had no intention of this turning into such a big part of my life. And what happened is that basically a kind of mini civil war broke out uh, while we were there. And suddenly lots of people were being killed and there were car bombs going off all over. And, of course, this is part of your historical experience. I mean, you lived through all that, Paul. Well, you know, I was struck earlier when you, um, just to bring things round, when you referred to uh, Seamus Heaney's description of his uh, attic as a bomb site. I mean, that is a somewhat loaded, a somewhat charged, as it were, phrase in that context. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think it's, you know, for me, one of the things that I certainly learned is irony is something that anybody who lives uh, in these conditions, you find in Iraq, you find it in Lebanon, uh, you find it in Libya, you find it in Jordan, where I was just doing a piece on Syrian refugees. There's a tremendous amount of irony, uh, which people use to, you know, maintain a sense of their own perspective. And at the same time, I think that what they're really trying to do is to say, well, yes, the world is terrible, but I have my mind and my mind is empowered to make fun of this. And I think that's a tremendous kind of imaginative gift. And that's one of the things that I always loved about Whenever I would meet, you know, people who had, you know, suffered really sometimes almost unspeakable things, uh, was that they had a certain distance from their own experience. But perhaps not as much distance as so many of us in this country have, where, put very crudely again, I mean, there are many of us who are not entirely sure of how many wars we're actually involved in right now. I think that's true. You know, there are two things. Um, There's the United States, and then there's everything around the United States. And if you look past the United States, you see that the whole horizon looks to be on fire. And that is just part of, say, one of the things that I loved about, um, like, say, Seamus's, you know, it's a fancy term, but historical consciousness. It's in your work. And the fact that you are aware that, in fact, the horizon is on fire, not in some kind of, like, grandstanding way, but just as a kind of fact to register. Tom Slay, I think that's um, a moment at which to stop and uh, consider 
uh, your poem again, The Fox, which you read there for us, um, as well as Seamus Heaney's poem, In the Attic. And both of those are to be found on newyorker.com. Tom Slay's uh, latest book of poems is Station Z. Yes. And Seamus Heaney's final collection was The Human Chain, the final uh, book of poems by Seamus Heaney, published posthumously, alas, selected poems, 1988 to 2013. Tom Slay, thank you so much for being with me today. Always a pleasure to see you, Paul. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.